1: Terratech is all about the products and companies that are using substantial materials that are changing the way we dress, eat, drink, shop, and live. We are becoming a more bioeconomic society and are more aware of the products in our lives. Now, here's your host, Jim Lane.
2: Welcome to Terratech. I'm your host, Jim Lane, for the next 60 minutes as we explore fountains of youth and fortresses of steel. The pursuit of age-defying youth is as old as ancient mythology and the dream of super strong materials that convey almost magical powers. Well, that's the everyday stuff of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, isn't it? But long-held dreams that we've expressed in fiction may at last be coming to fruition in the nonfiction world, and you may be able to extend life for decades and decades, replace lost limbs acquire new skills, acquire materials that change the way that you interact and control the world around you. It's all about the convergence of a couple of sets of technologies, genetics, big data, and advanced manufacturing, some of which you've heard in the headlines coming out of Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And a new wave of companies has started to come through with technologies that are on the verge of changing real-life outcomes for real people, um, often when using nothing more complex as a material than table sugar and water, or waste, traditionally headed for the landfill. Joining me this morning as we explore the materials and genetics revolution is Helena Tavares-Kennedy, who covers the sector for new, the digital voice of the new physical world, and she'll be next seen on the floor at the Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Conference coming up in Washington in just two weeks. Good morning, Helena.
0: Hi, good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me today. How are you
2: doing? We're doing great, and we're looking forward to seeing you in Washington, D.C., at ablc where we have a lot of the companies that we're going to be talking about and technologies will be will be on the floor you're going to be doing the herd on the floor segment uh, all the gossip about uh, what is is bubbling Uh, one of the things that you were reporting on most recently we had a story on hydras and this is a um, uh, a small tentacled uh, freshwater animal and they chop them up in research and what happens to them do they once we chop them up, is it do they the appears that they grow back? What's the what's the story there?
0: Well, it's really kind of crazy because you know, if you look at the pictures of what these little animals are, they're they're kind of creepy looking. <laughs> they're um, you know, kind of very elongated body and then they've got these little like tentacles at the end of their heads and so they're kind of creepy looking. But um, you know, the scientists have, have that have been researching them have found that you know, when you cut them up, you know, they have these, like the cytoskeleton, right? It's, it's basically like protein fibers that help hold them together. And when they cut them up, these protein fibers kind of regrow. Um, so, you know, you, you always hear about kind of from animal rights activists and things, you know, you don't want to harm animals when you're doing a lot of this research and these studies, but here they are literally cutting up this little animal and it's just regrowing itself. Um, So it's kind of a neat thing because it's, it's something that, you know, they're really trying to look at how this can impact humans and what we can learn from it. um, As far as, you know, maintaining your shape and, and adapting to new conditions. And, um, you know, I, my husband grew up in Florida and, he remembers having those, uh, I forgot what you call those, little tiny lizards in Florida. You probably know, Jim. Um, we, call
2: them, we call them little tiny lizards.
0: <laughs> little tiny lizards. <laughs> so a lot of times you see them in your house or, you know, outside, and if you pull, you know, if you try to grab them by their tail, their tail comes off, and eventually they regrow their tail. Um, so this is kind of the same idea, if you think about those little lizards in Florida. <laughs> but the neat thing is you literally can not just, rip their tail off but I mean this, they, you can literally cut their bodies up and they turn into this ball and, and they have a video that you can see where they kind of sped up the process and you can watch them you know watch their, their cells kind of turn into this ball shape instead of the elongated shape that they were uh, you know you cut them up each of those little pieces turns into a little ball and they regrow themselves and that's just pretty, pretty amazing Stuff for you know this tiny little ocean animal that we're now learning about.
2: Yeah, we uh, we actually call them geckos here in in lovely uh, Key Biscayne, Florida. That's, uh, the, that's it. Gecko. Yeah, save fifteen percent on your car insurance. I think <laughs> is, is 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 the tagline there. You know that's a that's an that's an old uh, dream from mythology. We had the Hydra in old Greek mythology, Medusa. And you, you chopped off her head and she was, uh, she was kind of the, the, the warrior that you could not defeat because the more you chopped off the head, the more the head would grow back. And so, you know, fighting made it uh, you know more and more impossible to, to defeat the, the Hydra. But the idea is um, something a little bit more magical, I think, uh, in some ways than simply watching an organism uh, that, can, that has this capability because isn't at the end of the day what we want is to be able to grow back like the hydra so is it um, what's happening out there in the world of science to change that outcome is it possible that we're going to without getting into too much genetic modification that people are a little bit leery about um, you know combining fish genes with tomato genes making a fish mato is it possible that we're able to import some of that capability from the hydra and well, extend our extend our own lives or regrow things for ourselves. What what do we learn from that?
0: Well, that's you know what the what scientists are hoping with this project. Um, you know, this is kind of in the early stages of their research, so they're basically trying to understand how the regeneration actually occurs. Um, you know, they they now know it occurs, which was kind of the big discovery of wow, this is really cool this, that this happens, um, and they're looking at how it. Um, occurs so that they can try to mimic it in other tissues and other species. So, really, they're looking at, like, the mechanics of it um, and trying to see if, like, the the mechanical way that it happens can be redone in other tissues or organs. Um, I think they're looking more at not, you know, necessarily, you know, we cut off our arm and we regrow an arm, but they're looking more at, you know, if we have a cut or if we have some tissue damage is there a way that we can use the same mechanical process that they do, to that the hydros do, to regrow that tissue?
2: Now we've had a lot of research done recently called stem cell research, and one of the ideas of a stem cell is a little bit related. It's a it's a cell that has an amazing ability not only to grow, but to uh, to grow things from very small origins. You know, very complex uh, things come from very simple. Uh, stem cells. So is this a, a case where we might see some convergence between stem cell research and the kind of research that we're seeing here?
0: I think so. Um, I think that you know, with stem cell research, there's, there's always been kind of this cloud of controversy around it um, because it uses um, you know, stem cells from human embryos. And I think the, the difference that I see between the stem cell research and these hydras, is, you know, here's something that you're not, you know, you don't have as much controversy with, you don't have kind of the ethical issues with um, with the hydras. Um, so I do think that that will give it kind of an advantage um, to using the, the hydras uh, for this project.
2: Yeah, it's always a, a bit uh, interesting to me that when I, when I watch a film, and as you mentioned, sometimes we, we get uh, concerned about the ethical treatment of animals or organisms in the lab, and you know, when you see a Hollywood film. They they often make a, um, a, a a very big point in the credits of mentioning that no animals were harmed in the making of this film. And then of right. course they're serving, but then they're serving hot dogs.
0: Um, <laughs> right.
2: And, and <laughs> it, it you, is you, not you, a
0: victory, isn't it? <laughs> you
2: you, you kind of you know you kind of wonder as you're having steak dinner how, how how that how that worked out for the cow. Um, yeah. So. So, but the, in this case, the hydra will come back. So, is this is this related to what we've seen with worms, or is this a little bit different? Because you know, historically, if you chop a worm in half, um, it it it, um, it becomes two worms. Uh, in some cases, so that's that's another piece of technology. But the hydra is a little bit more of a uh, sophisticated thing with probably a lot more in common with us as a as a species than uh, a little bit closer in the evolutionary chain. Is that is that significant? Is that one of the reasons why this is uh, an interesting, uh, uh, interesting development?
0: Um, I think it, it, the reason that this is really interesting too, um, you know, like for you mentioned worms, for example, um, you know, it, worms are a little bit different because they may or may not survive. It's not definite when they when you cut them. Um, a lot of times, it may regenerate the tail, kind of like we were mentioning with the little lizards in Florida, um, but. If it's cut in a certain area, then it won't regrow and it'll die. So um, the hydras are really unique um, because, that, you know, because of the way that they regrow and, and because of their cytoskeleton. It's basically these proteins um, that they have uh, a memory in, you know, and it's basically a mechanical nature that they have rather than a biochemical and that is something that the scientists were surprised about they thought that it you you know that the reason they regrew their missing parts was because of biochemical you know reaction but because it's a very mechanical thing due to the the proteins that basically they have an internal kind of memory like a little memory bank and they just once they're cut up they just have that memory bank kind of come out and say, all right, guys, let's get together and recreate what we were. <laughs> um, so it definitely is a little bit different, I think, than, than the worm thing that we've heard about. Um, and I think that's what, what gives this kind of some really promising um, hope for us as far as like, you know, looking at how this may be able to help humans with um, regenerating tissue.
2: Yeah, I had a I had an episode recently with a I had a fight with a hammer and lost a lost a fingernail in the process, and I was very grateful that my body knew how to grow it back in its entirety because it was uh, it was pretty ugly right. there for a while. So so we we apparently have a lot of capability wow. to regrow things. We just seem to lose that capability. I know that people would like to be able to regrow hair um, in the right place at the right time uh, as well. So all kinds of opportunities. But you were reporting. Um, A few weeks back that this is not necessarily just a completely far out thing in uh, strictly in the lab. you were reporting on a company called Akron Biotechnology, which actually is uh, down in in, uh, Florida. And uh, they were uh, joining the Manufacturing USA initiative. um, And this is part of the Advanced Regenerative Manufacturing Institute to uh, develop and manufacture tissue and organs. So sounds like it might be a little bit closer. What's what's the story there?
0: Um, let me just refresh my memory on that one. Can you? What, yeah, the a, ar-
2: This is, this gonna, is the ar- Well, it's called the Army Initiative, which is funny because it's uh, the A R M I Initiative. It comes from the Department of Defense, of course, um, but it's the M Y. So, uh, uh, join the Army. In this case, is hundred organizations right. and
0: yeah, yeah. Yes, eighty million that one. in funding. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So, um, it's a biofabrication technology and biomaterials and cell processing. Department of Defense is behind it. And the idea right. is that they're going to be manufacturing tissue and organs. Is that uh, what? what uh, how, how close are those kinds of things? Is this is something you know, fifty years out, twenty years out, or is it a reality right around the corner?
0: Well, I think that um, it's definitely a reality. I don't know that it's a reality right around the corner, though, because this this project um, was a re- it's a research um, kind of initiative. So there's, you know, all these organizations and a lot of funding, like you mentioned, from the government and and the Defense Department and stuff, but the key is, you know, they're investing a lot of money to research this, so I don't know that we are going to see anything, you know, any big movement on this right now. Um, What they're really trying to do is spend the money on this research so that eventually they can do actual tissue regeneration. Obviously... It's very crucial for the military. You know, they they want to be able to um, accelerate this research and and really uh, focus on this because of the advantage, you know, for them um, as a defense institution. But um, yeah, I, I have a feeling that it's going to be more more like the you know fifteen to twenty year range, honestly.
2: What a what a force multiplier for for a country to be able to. Uh uh, to perform those kinds of uh, repairs on our our uh, those who wear the uniform. That's a that's a big big deal for uh, for many people who often express that um, as much as nobody wants to die for their country, um, you know they they certainly also don't want to be maimed for their country. So the idea that they they can you know come back from a from a very severe injury or injury would be uh, big news for the military. But but those applications yeah. that the military invests in, boy, they they really spread around, don't they? We've we've seen the um, uh, the DARPA uh, initiatives, uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, they they um, fostered the internet at one stage, and also things like uh, everyday things like Kevlar that uh, become super strong materials, which we're going to get to later in the in the hour. So,
0: yeah, uh, defense
2: the defense is often behind this, isn't it? Aren't they?
0: They they definitely are, and and I think you bring up a good point. It's you know not just necessarily defense, but also you know the government, the federal government. Um, you know, historically, the federal government has really. Then I want to say, an innovator. You know, people talk about the government or complain about it as, oh, you know, bureaucracy, thread tape, things take forever to get passed through, laws take forever to go, you know, go from drafting to actual past. Well, but when you look at, you know, the the innovation that has come from government and from our defense um, arms, you know, it's amazing. And, um, you know, this is just one example, but like you mentioned, the Internet, I mean, that really was... was Kind of a government in- initiative. Um, so I think that there's there's some serious power when you get this many organizations um, together. You know, not just the federal government, but you also tie them in with nonprofits, with academic, you know, institutions, some universities that are really, really doing innovative stuff. And you give these these people who this is their job. The, their job is. 24/7 just doing research and figuring things out and finding new innovations um, and when you dedicate money and time to people you know for people to actually do this it's amazing what can happen and and I think that you know really the success of, of these kinds of initiatives is very dependent on the continued funding the patience that you know people need to realize you know you can't just do research and, and you know do a trial on something and a week later be done. You know, a lot of these things, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of steps that need to happen for it to even get into the prototype stage or to do a clinical trial or anything like that. Um, so anyway, I just want to point out that, you know, it's, it, this kind of project reminds me that the power of numbers is really important. And the more organizations and groups you get together, I think it can be a very powerful thing.
2: Well, Rome wasn't built in a day, and apparently arms are not either. So that's right. a, a, a good cautionary note there. Um, Helena, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our exploration of the world of new materials and genetics as we look at fountains of youth and fortresses of steel. We're going to come back and look at advanced materials um, as well as genetics and things that you can wear, not just things that are in, that you attach uh, inside your body. And we'll be back right after this. Stay with us.
1: stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast all the time the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts
2: voiceamerica.com TerraTech is brought to you by the advanced bioeconomy leadership conference march 1st through 3rd in washington dc technology convergence energy security advanced manufacturing and clean economy jobs
1: the rfs which is renewable fuel standard is an important tool in the mission to achieve energy independence for the United States. Energy independence is a requirement of America to become great again. My theme is Make America Great Again. I will do all that is in my power as president to achieve that goal. Combination of biology and uh, the technologies coming out of IT is really what's going to drive some amazing oil prices yes the story on um, everyone's talking about but if the u.s can prove that next-gen biofuels works and that you know other technologies work like dme and and really great kind of biogas vehicles then they can export that the thing that
2: really is exciting is this convergence to learn more visit biofuelsdigest.com ablc
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: You are listening to Tarot To reach Jim Lane or his guest today, call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to lane at biofuelsdigest.com. Now, back to the show.
2: Welcome back to Tech. I'm your host, Jim Lane. We're exploring today fountains of youth and fortresses of steel. And joining me this morning as we explore the materials and genetics revolution is Helena Tavares-Kennedy. And Helena, right before the break, we were we were talking uh, quite a bit about uh, regenerative tissue um, but we also see uh, in a report that you uh, filed with uh, with new recently that uh, big data which is the you know other side of silicon valley that's the uh, that's the number crunching side as opposed to the the, uh, the biotech side is being used to help paralyzed patients regain movement so let's uh, let's it's at the research stage but what's the story there
0: well you know when you think about big data, you usually think about huge, giant computers, right? Or at least that's what I think about. Maybe I'm a little I, I older. Think the think the,
2: the bat computer in the bat cave, that's what I exactly. think about. Exactly, yeah, that's yeah. kind
0: of what you think about with big data. And, you know, I've read a lot of more about big data in agricultural scenes, you know, and kind of uh, using big data for farming and for, you know, more advanced kind of agricultural techniques and stuff. But um, I was really fascinated that there's, big data being used in a medical setting. Um, You know, you often think about, or you hear about the medical setting as kind of being antiquated as far as medical records not being able, you know, you can't share medical records with your doctor in California um, with your, you know, it doesn't work with the doctor that you have when you're visiting Florida, right? So there's a lot of kind of talk that you hear about lack of technology in the medical community or in the medical space. And so this big data, you know, being used for a medical uh, function, you know, this is really cool. And what they're doing is really trying to help um, people with paralyzed limbs. So right now, they're doing it on arms. You know, they're they're using um, some people who have uh, lost all function of an arm, and they basically, you know, are they wrap their arm in this. Um, you know, it's kind of like a big giant Band-Aid is what it looks like. They, they have a picture of it online that you can look up. And it looks like a giant Band-Aid with like little sensors all over it. And what it does is, you know, these sensors are all com- connected to a computer and they're taking the data from the patient's brain um, because the patient is, you know, thinking to itself and saying okay, move your arm or move this finger. And Obviously, it doesn't work if you're paralyzed because the connection, either through your spinal cord or whatever, you know, is, is not being made, and that's why you're paralyzed. But by using this kind of sleeve on your arm, it's, it's connecting the patient's thoughts to the muscles and the movement in the arm, and they're using the data that they collect from the patient's brain to make that arm move isn't that amazing?
2: <laughs> that is amazing. I, I I don't want to trivialize this advance because it's a big advance. But I've sat many a time, as we as we all have, um, needing to do something very urgently on the internet, and you don't suddenly have internet access, and you you really do get paralyzed very quickly. You have a sense of of uh, you know what it is to be you know caught without the. Um, the tools that you need, and I think it was T.S. Eliot. I think you said, or it might have been John Paul Sartre, who said that in in uh, in hell nothing connects, and that's uh, yeah. that was his that was his definition. So big data is is helping us to rebuild uh, connections. That's yeah. And that when seems- and
0: when you think about you know, and, and I think a lot of people out, you know out there may not know exactly what big data means, but you know, you're talking about huge amounts of data though, um, and that's why this is really cool to see technology integrated into a medical setting. Um, like they collect 3 million data points, okay, 3 million data points. That's a lot. <laughs> every second. And you think about that, There, you know, you think about 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't collect 3 million data points every second from, from a patient's brain. There's no way that could be done. And here it is being done. And I think that, that just blows my mind sometimes when you think about you know, a, a computer system or, you know, technology collecting that much data per second and then translating it into actually moving someone's arm.
2: I think it's a little less uh, amazing to people who've looked at their children's Facebook feeds. So,
0: but <laughs> That's true. You know, some people can text that fast.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems like they're getting 3 million data points every second and, and you know, trying to get a... Well, let me ask you, actually, in the world of... in, in a world... Uh, of privacy, which is the world of medicine. We, we appear to be wanting to be more and more private about our medical history. And, and you've pointed out, this is one of the difficulties in, in solving problems is that we can't share that data. And yet in the world of social media, people are taking Hosting selfies and, bro- and they're broadcasting their entire experience. We've had cases, I mean, terribly tragic circumstances uh, recently I'm just real tragedy of somebody took their life while streaming, on the streaming the event on the internet. I didn't watch it, of course. Uh, you know, I hope nobody did. But you know, when you get that kind of broadcasting uh, going and that kind of self-expression, do you have a working theory as to why we feel the need to broadcast so much of our lives, and yet when it comes to something that could be a life-saving thing, such as our medical data, why we're increasingly getting nervous about sharing
0: two words for you jim internal conflict (laughs) i mean i yeah i i often ask the same question and you know a lot of times i see people posting you know where they're having dinner at and you know taking pictures of their meal and posting it and i'm sitting there going but you know i know you and you were just diagnosed with cancer last week and you're not posting anything about that like you know I don't know. It's, it's just strange that there's certain things that people are very private about. And I think when it comes to medical things, uh, health issues, um, a lot of times people are kind of like, you know, I don't want people to know or I don't want to share that with anybody or they're worried that, you know, if they have online medical records that somebody's going to hack into it and mess with their prescriptions or something. Um, I think there's this inherent kind of fear or lack of trust um, with me- our medical information, but yet at the same time, like you said, we feel like we need a, a connection to society. We need a- to connect to our community. And, you know, it used to be you connected via your neighbors, via your work colleagues, your kid's school, whatever it was, you connected in those ways, and now people are connecting through social media. And so now they're, they're much more willing to share their personal information you know, on, on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever, and at the same time, they're very concerned about, like, you know, financial records. So, you know, we, we're talking about the medical community, but how many people do you know talk about their bank accounts or their, you know, their financial records? Nobody, you know. Um, that's another thing that people are like, don't touch it, don't ask about it, it's a personal thing, and um, we just kind of have this internal conflict of we want certain things to be kept private, Um that, that have kind of this lack of trust with it because you don't want people hacking in or messing with it like the medical records or your financial data. Um, but at the same time, you really, it's, it's our human nature. We want to be connected with people and social media has, has given us that tool to connect with people who may not necessarily be physically near us.
2: So we have this, this um, rise of, of this uh, reaction against what we call body shaming which is, of course, you know, people who are making inappropriate remarks about other people's selfies, uh, if you will. And, um, and so we, we have that. So we have this, this privacy uh, movement as well. So this is, this is going to be, a, I guess, a, a tension that we're going to be facing in, uh, in our society for some time to come. Yet we have this wonderful connector. I guess it's the Mark Zuckerberg of the body called the brain. And uh, which is the, the ultimate social media, taking in three million data points every second, as you say, or more, because that's just from from uh, certain probably the sections that we can measure of the brain and right. translating that into movement command. So this is uh, as as big data gets much bigger. Um, and this is the it, can we expect um, that these conflicts and these opportunities are going to get even larger? We're in that Moore's law environment, aren't we, where every year or every 18 months, the processing uh, capability of, a, of a, you know, transistors on a chip doubles. And yeah. uh, so we're going to get more of this, right, not less of this.
0: I, I think so. And, you know, you're talking about the, the speed, you know, every 18 months, the speed of technology just being kind of crazy now. But it's funny, our human bodies are also adjusting. I, I remember reading that with every generation that's born, their IQ is like one and a half points higher than the previous generation. And I thought, oh, wow, so my kids really are smarter than me. (laughs) Um, But I I think that because we are moving at a much faster pace and, you know, some people think it's just um, kind of evolution, but I I think that we're going to see more of this. Uh, I do think that each generation is going to be born smarter than the the previous generation and technology is going to keep getting faster and bigger. I don't know what the kind of peak point will be. Um, I Certainly don't think we've reached it, but um, it'll be interesting to kind of see, you know, if there ever is a peak point or what happens, or eventually we're just so smart we blow ourselves up, I don't know. <laughs> but um, it's, um, it's going to be interesting to watch what happens and, uh, and see how we adapt to these changes.
2: Yeah, we just heard this morning that uh, there are some, uh, apparently the Russian Navy has brought some missiles down into the uh, Caribbean and apparently off the uh, off the coast of Cuba again. So, um, so who knows how wow. long. I, we're, we we had a very bright sunrise this morning in Key Biscayne, so I got a little worried. Uh, initially, Uh-oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know. Oh, two suns. Oh, gracious me. How, how did Uh-oh. that happen? Was not like a good. Of, yeah, not good. So. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. But one of the things that's happened in our society, in addition to this dichotomy of privacy versus um, uh, wanting to express ourselves all the time, is we have this have and have not thing that we've seen going on. We see these you know, billionaires uh, being created virtually overnight in the world of big data, people who form companies and make extravagant amounts of money. The guys who take them public on on Wall Street are making extravagant uh, amounts of money. But a lot of people are feeling very much left behind. And we've seen that, uh, that there's been a lot of speculation that some of the reason we've seen this political wave of Brexit and Grexit and, um, and the American elections is, is because of too many people feeling left behind. Yet, in this particular set of technologies, because a lot of the advances not only are going to be based on big data, but the ones that are based on, let's say, fermentation technologies made from table sugar uh, that can be grown anywhere around the world. Tell me a little bit, of, um, wearing your roundtable of sustainable biomaterials hat, tell us a little bit about how how the world might change um, in terms of the supply chain to allow people who've been uh, growing uh, sugar at very, very low cost to be able to participate in the changing of our world by you know, supporting things like tissue manufacturing. How does that change the, how does that change the third world?
0: Oh, huge, huge impact on, on people who grow sugarcane or who, who are in what we traditionally consider, um, less developed countries who are m- much more focused on farming, uh, and maybe not as industrialized as we are. Um, it has a huge impact and, um, you know, when I was working with the Roundtable on Sustainable Biomaterials, um, a lot of the organizations that uh, that they were certifying at the time are, you know, these, these farming co-ops or these groups of small farmers that are all over the world, you know, in Brazil, South Africa, Sri Lanka, um, just all over the place. And a lot of them, you know, were providing feedstock. They were providing biomaterial for very innovative companies, um, a lot of them in Europe or in the U.S. Uh, so I see that, and I, I kind of consider it a responsibility of, of ours as, as the more industrialized nations, um, that as we get, you know, as our countries get wealthier and our businesses become more innovative and we create more wonderful things for the world, um, I think it's our responsibility to also kind of lift up those that are in these less industrialized countries and really struggling. Um, there's a lot. I mean, when you look at some of the statistics of how many people don't even have fresh water every day, it's, it's insane. And, um, you know, we don't necessarily have people dying here in the U.S. because of lack of fresh water. We, we do have people dying from, you know, diseases and cancers and um, also homelessness. Um, but it's one of those things that um, for these people that are, on these farms and, and may not have clean access to clean water or may not um, have the proper irrigation techniques for their farming to, you know, property to be really successful. These kinds of projects can make a huge, huge difference. And, you know, the Roundtable on Sustainable Biomaterials would certify um, those that could prove that they're more sustainable. But again, a lot of these farmers are too poor to even pay for the certification or to, Change things that need to be changed to meet the sustainability cri- criteria. Um, so that's where a lot of these big organizations. We had a lot of aviation um, organizations that were looking for biojet fuel. You know, they help pay for a lot of these certifications for small farmers who couldn't, and really help lift them out of poverty. Um, we had some po- projects in South South Africa where. You know, they used to have a, you know, seasonal kind of once a year, it was kind of a drought period, and they would call it like the starvation period. And once they went in there and and changed the way they did things and and these companies from Europe really invested and helped them out, now they don't have that starvation period every year. You know, they they don't have a a famine uh, at a certain time. So I think that, um, you know, we do see a lot of impact from what, we as industrial nations do for, for other countries around the world. And um, I think it's just a, it's part of our responsibility, but I think in the end it's going to make everybody um, better off because you now don't have you know, these people who are starving or, or struggling as much um, in these countries, and you're getting the feedstocks you need. You're getting the sugars you need. You're getting um, you know, whatever it is that you need for your project and for your business.
2: Yeah, we've seen uh, in the supply chain, it's, it's probably not a very well-known fact that, that we have, uh, let's say, take a $5 box of cornflakes. If you march down to your supermarket, you might find yourself for the big box paying 5 bucks, And, and about $0.10 cents of that goes back to the corn farmer. And that's the, uh, uh, you know, the rich, fat, and happy uh, American corn farmer. It's, it's, much, uh, uh, it, it's much the same story for, for many uh, a farmer around the world that they, they don't actually participate in very much at all of the the money that goes into the the uh the food and materials supply chain is that uh, is that a general problem or is that is that something that that these new uh technologies and new companies might be changing and bringing people closer to um participating at a higher rate so they can not only grow more but they can make a little bit more uh from their growing is that the um is that the story
0: yeah i definitely think that i that first, to answer first question, it definitely is an issue. Um, we hear that, you know, not just from U.S. farmers, but absolutely from farmers all over the world, that they don't necessarily see the money as, uh, you know that the companies are charging for their products. Um, part of that, you know, is just due to the supply chain. You know, you, there is a lot of manufacturing and processing, like, for example, your cornflakes, um, there are a lot of steps in there between the corn from the farmer and the product on the shelf, which do add cost. Um, you know, there's a lot of additional costs in that in that process, um, but I think that um, one of the great things that, that I think is a, a new opportunity that farmers really didn't have 10, 20 years ago is, you know, it used to be you had your product that you sold, whether it was corn or sugar cane or whatever, and there was a lot of waste, and You threw it away, you put it in a landfill, you burned it. Um, Obviously, burning is a very, very big uh, environmental issue, but that's also a very common thing for farmers to do around the world. Um, So, you know, they don't have a landfill to take it to, so they burn it. Um, And one of the things that is really nice now is that there's all these businesses that are actually finding ways to use that waste and converting that waste into something useful so I think that there's a lot more opportunity now for farmers to sell their waste um, and get something for it, which will help with their profitability, since they're not I mean, getting it with the commodity. We're
2: gonna we're gonna take a short break here. And when we come back, we're gonna continue our exploration of the world of, of uh, genetics, but also we're gonna focus on new materials in our special fortresses, fountains of youth, fortresses of steel. We're gonna look more at fortresses of steel after the break. Stay with us.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: TerraTech is brought to you by the Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Conference, March 1st through 3rd, in Washington, D.C. Technology convergence, energy security, advanced manufacturing, and clean economy jobs.
1: The RFS, which is Renewable Fuel Standard, is an important tool in the mission to achieve energy independence for the United States. Energy independence is a requirement of America's to become great again. My theme is make America great again. I will do all that is in my power as president to achieve that goal. Combination of biology and uh, the technologies coming out of IT is really what's gonna drive some amazing oil prices, yes. The story on um, everyone's talking about, but if the US can prove that next gen biofuels works and that you know other technologies work like DME and and really great kind of biogas vehicles, then they can export that.
2: The thing that really is
1: exciting is this convergence.
2: To learn more visit biofuelsdigest.com slash ABLC. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
1: You are listening to Tech. To reach Jim Lane or his guest today, call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to lane at biofuelsdigest.com. Now, back to the show.
2: Welcome back to Terra Tech. I'm your host, Jim Lane, and we're exploring today fountains of youth and fortresses of steel. And in this section, uh, joining me uh, again, through, as she has throughout this program, is Helena Tavares-Kennedy. And we're going to be looking at fortresses of steel. And Helena, you reported on a story just uh, this past week coming out of Sweden that uh, synthetic spider silk is now a viable solution for manufacturing. Now, Spidey fans around the world are on the edge of their chairs to find out if they can run around Gotham City or elsewhere with their synthetic spider
0: silk. What's the story there? Well, we, we won't be able to kind of run around with uh, spider silk coming out of our hands quite yet. <laughs> but, um you know, as cool as that would be to be able to climb buildings and have the spider silk, you know, emitted from your, your fingertips, um, we're looking at much more of a practical use at this point. Um, you know, I think spider silk we've, we've covered in the, in the Biofuels Digest and, and in the new publication quite a bit in the past, I would say, year or two. Um, but the really neat thing is it's all, always been kind of uh, researching, you know, wow, it's really cool, it's really strong, um, super lightweight and, you know, really flexible type of, of thing to try to use in real life. But um, these Swedish researchers, which, by the way, I want to mention that they are all three of the, the lead researchers that had these uh, discoveries, were women. So just for those of you who say, oh, we need more women researchers, absolutely, because uh, some of these women researchers here are doing some amazing things. Um, and the, these women, they... Um, they were able to actually recreate spider silk. So, you know, we've looked at spider silk in its natural setting, but it takes forever for spiders to actually create spider silk. So they could never really create enough to make it a viable thing for, like, textiles, you know, to make fabrics out of or, you know, to really make it for industrial use. Um, So the fact that they were able to create an artificial spider silk um, it's pretty cool in itself, but and that's happened before. What's really neat about this story is that this is the first time that they've been able to create a spider silk that's long enough for commercial use. So usually they can't make uh, spider silk very long, and it breaks apart quickly, and, and they just can't really mimic how a spider, silk, a spider actually weaves it and makes it. So what they've done is they... Um, one of the researchers uh, created a biomimetic, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right because I'm not a scientist. I'm you know an international relations kind of impact person. And uh, I had to look up what biomimetic was, but they basically created the spinning process that mimics how the spiders create their own fibers. And that allowed them to create these spider silk threads that were a kilometer long. Now, this is huge because a kilometer long is, is what will make it a real viable thing for um, industries like textiles, you know, to make uh, textiles out of. So it's a pretty, pretty amazing um, a discovery because here it is, you know, kind of going from the research stage to, all right, guys, now we can actually make it. Here it is.
2: Now of course in the back in the Marvel cinematic Universe um, Peter Parker you know got this going just simply by being irradiated um, in the right way at the right time um, but of course that was actually in Spider-man wasn't that really the breakthrough that that as you pointed out spiders it's it's an amazing material but spiders can't make it very fast. That's been one of the problems and they couldn't make it very long the the webs are very small so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily a material, you know, ready for prime time crime fighting, and that's kind of what Peter Parker figured out. It appears that he's been using the Hydra uh, technology as well because he's got a regenerative uh, thing going on there in his wrist. So, so yeah. apparently he's he's been reading your work and knew. Uh, so that's uh, <laughs> kind of putting putting some solutions together. So I'm I'm sure that uh, I'm sure the uh, your friends at Marvel are watching your stuff every day. But um, so you're talking about the rate of production, but. In, in the end of the day, let's go back to spider silk. Now, it's it's basically a protein, so right. it's 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 a protein. So it's like you know what you find in meat and whatever. But it's a it's a very special stacked kind, and it has flexibility. As you know, if you uh, you know anything that has protein, obviously if you uh, you know dangle a chicken, it'll it'll bend on you. So um, <laughs> if it doesn't bite right. you in, in the process, so but it's very strong. Now, why is this protein? Why is it very strong um, Protein's not necessarily known for that why is it stronger than steel or is it stronger than steel that's the claim
0: right and um,
2: is it the way it's stacked it's, is that is that is it sort of a you know one of those things where like a diamond is very is a lot stronger than a lead pencil or a graphite pencil even though it's under the same underlying material it's kind of how it's built is that is that well, how they're able to do it
0: I think so, and, and my understanding is that it's basically the, the tensile strength that makes it so, so impressive because it's such a lightweight, it's like a very, very lightweight type of material, and so that's why they say it's you know, stronger than steel. Um, so technically, if you look at the weight of the spider silk versus the weight of steel, then spider silk is much stronger than steel um, for its weight, um, it's basically, you know, it's a, a very, it's less dense than steel. That's what makes it so lightweight. Um, so the tensile strength is, you know, what they refer to when they say that it's, you know, strong, as strong as steel.
2: Um, now, when you get a, when you get a uh, let's say you take a, um, a thick rope, um, which everyone would be familiar with, or a thick cable, if you will, and you can see that what they've done is, is it's actually a bunch of strands of fiber are joined together in a bunch and then those are braided into a larger unit and then sometimes those braids are in fact joined together in larger units and those units give a lot more strength to the material than the underlying fiber ever would have. And that's been traditionally how you can get very small plant fibers or uh, to to make very strong ropes like a rope bridge obviously is not made from a, a plant that's, you know, 200 feet long. Um, so they, they have some technologies for doing that. Is that, uh, is that something that we, we we hope to see with spider silk as well?
0: I think so. Braid, braid, um,
2: braiding you know, technology, I guess, well, is what
0: you're... I don't know about, about the braiding technology. They didn't really... Um, I haven't seen anything about actually braiding it. Um, but what I have seen is the fact that it is so strong and, and because it's um, something... You know, it's a protein that can now be synthetically recreated um, they can also try to adapt it and, and you know change things in it to make it even better but um, the big thing is you know that this artificial uh, spider silk um, can now be recreated without a lot of strong chemicals. Um, it used to be that if you wanted to, make a synthetic spider silk or, or recreate it, that you had to use a lot of really strong kind of toxic chemicals to go through the process of making it. Um, and now they don't have to um, from what these Swedish, Swedish researchers have found. So I think that um, there's hope in that, um, that as we have more and more of these discoveries that there's going to be better ways of recreating it. I definitely think braiding it could be something that they can use. Um, you know, they mentioned textiles, um, how this actually how they're actually going to use the threads for textiles I imagine would be kind of like a weaving um, similar you know to what we do with cotton or with actual you know with silk um, silk fabrics um, so I think it's it's going to be neat to see what they do with it
2: now you uh, a little bit earlier in the year brown Christmas time you reported on a, a company called spinthesis which is um, out of uh, North Dakota I believe and this particular company takes us in a couple of different directions. And one of them, they're using a spider silk uh, technology, but they're looking not only to make uh, metal conductors, which would be very interesting if they had unusual uh, conductivity, uh, but also medical treatments. And we were talking earlier in the program about these smart bandages. And so apparently they're going to be using uh, – Spinthesis is going to be making uh, smart bandages with more elastic uh, properties – um, that can adjust compression based on movement. Is, uh, what's the story there?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, here we are with spider silk in a totally different industry, right? Um, instead of making textiles, here we are talking about it in a medical setting. Um, just, to, just to show you that these, you know, what I consider feedstocks, you know, these, these proteins, these discoveries that we're making um, can be used in such a wide range of applications in our life. And um, you know, you think about uh, Band-Aids. Um, Band-Aids are kind of a synthetic thing that you put on on your wound, right? Um, they're looking at spider silk for kind of a, a Band-Aid, a natural Band-Aid. Um, that's better than what we have now because with the spider silk's flexibility, it has, you know, it's very elastic and you can it would adjust and based on your movement. So kind of we talked about those sleeves, um, you know, for, for paralyzed patients on uh, moving, you know, being able to move their arms with those sleeves that have the sensors. This is kind of uh, the same thing but for a wound, you know. You put on the Band-Aid and it would adjust to your movement. And now, obviously, if you have a little cut on your finger, not a big deal, but... When you're talking about some people who have literally bandages around a whole limb or, um, you know, really serious, serious wounds and big bandages, you know, that is an issue. Uh, blood circulation is an issue. You know, if you have a, a foot or a leg or something wrapped uh, due to a serious wound, um, if it's put on too tight, cuts off your blood circulation. Um, if it's too loose, it falls off or, you know, doesn't help heal as well. So, being able to use spider silk for this kind of thing, like a you know a, a wound application, is really neat um, and something that you know. But maybe 50 years from now, they'll be like, oh, remember when we used to have those bad band-aids that weren't flexible and you know it would tear off your skin when you put it took it off. And <laughs> so it's one of those things that you know I remember always having band-aids growing up, and and my kids now have band-aids, but. Um, this could be kind of the next wave.
2: Maybe some applications in space as well, because if you, you know, if you cut yourself on the surface of Mars and you've run out of band aids, it's not like you can run down to the CVS, um, you know, right. two years, two years down the road, um, uh, to pick up a a resupply. And uh, as we saw in the in the film The Martian, resupply ships sometimes take two and three years to to get ready. So if you run short on supplies. Um, that's a big problem, and we saw that spinthesis is is um, marrying their spider silk technology, which ultimately I expect is going to be using. Uh, they're going to use 3D printing now. 3D printing generally uses something called polylactic lactic acid um, as its as as the resin that is used to uh, to make these materials. And polylactic acid, everybody uh, knows lactic acid because it's the thing that that uh, when your milk goes off a little bit, it's because the lactic acid has built up in the milk. It's The sugars have converted to an acid. That's why it, it smells a bit sour. Well, polylactic acid is used for 3D printing. So Smythesis is apparently marrying this technology to 3D printing. Applications in space, would that be a, a near-term uh, thing that we would want to be doing is manufacturing uh, these kinds of materials in space to help our astronauts meet um, unforeseen challenges that they didn't pack something in their backpack for? Is that possible?
0: I think that is possible because um, the the spider silk. You know, first of all, it is something that can be created synthetically, right? So, or now it can. <laughs> now it can be created synthetically. Um, but because it is so lightweight, it's really perfect for um, for space exploration. Because um, you know, you need to keep in mind the weight of what you're carrying up there, um, but also the strength is amazing. So. It's got kind of two properties that I'm sure NASA is always looking for um, in, in anything that they put up in space. So the other thing that I want to mention, though, is that um, spider silk, um, when it's in its natural state, now I, I don't know about the synthetic spider silk that's being created, but the natural spider silk um, is, you know, it's a biomaterial, and, and a natural material that is actually less likely to be rejected by human tissue. So, you know, when you're, if you know, if you're working up at the International Space Station, um, and you get a wound or a cut, then this could be something that would really help you out because you're you're less likely to reject it if you um, put something on that's uh, natural spider silk. So, uh, it definitely could be something viable. You know, combining the medical and the and the um, space, but. Um, I think that definitely the the lightweight nature of it and the strength of it is something that I'm sure is drawing their attention. And I'll be looking out for articles on that because I I just have a feeling it's just a matter of time before I see something out there about that.
2: Well, that's Helena, that's all we have time for this morning on TerraTech. Thank you very much for joining us in this hour. We're going to be back next Wednesday at 9 Eastern for another dip into the changing world of products all around us. Until then, I'm Jim Lane wishing you a great day, in this new world of opportunity. We'll see you next week.
1: Thank you for tuning into Terra Tech. Please join your host, Jim Lane, again next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific time, 9 a.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And this week, take notice of the products in your life.